all this thing happening, they become entrepreneurs, and that feeds into productivity growth and then feeds into future economic growth. The second way that the bubbles might be useful is that the new technology that sort of appears in some of these bubbles may help stimulate future innovation. So all of this technology is developed during the bubbles. There's all this money thrown at the technology, but the technology may actually be used to stimulate future innovation. Um, and we see that in some of the technological bubbles that we, we look at and talk about in the book. And the third way in which bubbles may be useful is that there's certain projects that wouldn't be financed to the same extent in a fully efficient and functioning financial market. And so many historical bubbles, they've been associated with transformative new technologies, think railways, think bicycles, automobiles, fiber optics, internet. And without the, the bubble, these wonderful technologies wouldn't have been financed to the same extent. So there's a guy called William Janeway, who was a highly successful venture capitalist during the 1990s in the United States, during the dot-com bubble. And he argues that several economically beneficial technology just simply wouldn't have been developed without the assistance of a bubble. So in this sense, bubbles can be described as being useful. One of the core concepts in the book is the bubble triangle. Can you explain it? This goes back to the fire metaphor. So if you can remember back, Sean, to your chemistry school days when you've been taught chemistry in the fire triangle, you need these three components for a fire to happen. And if you remove one of these components then the fire disappears, so you need uh, fuel, uh, you need oxygen and you need heat. And so we take uh, and extend this metaphor to think about bubbles. So there's three sides of the bubble triangle. So first of all, we have marketability, the ease with which you can buy and sell financial asset, a piece of land, a house. Okay, and what we observe over time is that marketability increases and the bubbles are associated with, with highly marketable instruments. So that's the first thing. So that's akin to oxygen. The fuel for the bubble triangle is money or credit. So when interest rates are low, that can stimulate reaching for yield. Uh, there's a famous quote that Bajet has along the lines of John Bull can withstand many things, but he can't withstand 2%. And John Bull's sort of this personification of, of England or of Great Britain. When interest rates are low, people reach for riskier assets and, and they're looking for yield. And so that's part of the fuel. Fuel can also come through credit. So when interest rates are low and credit conditions are eased, you know, people then borrow to buy the bubble asset. So that's the oxygen, the fuel. And then we have the heat. And the heat comes from speculation. Speculation is very simple. This is where people are buying an asset, whether that be shares, land, or property, simply with the aim of making a short-term capital gain. That's the only reason. They're not buying it to get dividends, to get rental income. They're buying it to make a short-term gain. And so... During bubbles, you tend to see lots of speculation. And particularly what we notice, you tend to see a lot of amateurs or novices becoming speculators. So that's the three sides. And so like any fire, you know, fire requires some sort of spark to get it going, some sort of external spark. And so for the bubble triangle and the bubbles that we look at through history, there's two sparks. The main spark's politics. So some new political event happens and that's what sparks off the bubble. This can be deliberately engineered by governments or it's, it's a side effect of some other policy they have. Or bubbles can be sparked by some innovative new technology. Uh, and so we've got politically sparked bubbles and technologically sparked bubbles. So that's, that, in a nutshell, John, is, is the bubble triangle. So, John, we don't have time to go through all of the bubbles in your book, but the first bubbles you mention 
in the book were the 1700s. Uh, you go on to consider how the economic status of participants in historical bubbles changed through time. What did you see in the data? So, Sean, this is a really, really interesting question and you've picked up. I'm glad that you've picked up because it has told us that it works. So one of the, the narrative arcs that we have on the book is this idea of the democratization of of speculation. The first two bubbles that we look at in the book, the bubbles of 1720 and 1825, it's only the elites investing. It's only those who can afford to lose money in some senses who are investing. Share denominations, which are in the hundreds of pounds, these shares are priced beyond the capacity of the middle classes. But then when we move into the, the mid-19th century with the railway mania, which happened in, in Britain in the 